So obviously, uh, this is a very, very vast topic, and I'm actually, you know, reconsidering uh, normally when we have taught this text before, we actually used to teach a course at the university called Islamic Spirituality, where we used to teach Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyum, Al-Ghazali, Sheikh Ahmed Hindi, Sheikh Amdakhanda Jalani, Ibn Atta'illah, all of these writers, all primary works in translation, because we wanted people to see the Sawa for themselves, and to read all these five, six, seven, there were a couple of others as well, but slightly maybe lesser well-known to you, uh, authors. And so this text actually is something I would teach sort of in the second half of that course. So a lot of concepts had already been mentioned by other writers as well. So I think I overestimated how much I would be able to do for you, <laughs> given that I, every line I have to actually stop and explain it, because for you it's like the first day of the course, right? So obviously we have given you way more material than I would be able to teach you today. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to start skipping uh, a couple of things. And then what I may do uh, very quickly is I may actually just summarize myself the rest of um, Let's do that. So let me go through this a bit quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing like I've been doing, right? Going line by line because line by line commentary is going to be too much. All right? So on page 192. This letter, you don't have to look at it, I'll just explain to you. This letter is also talking about the shathat that we were talking about, the ecstatic utterances. Now here, Imam al-Rabani just coins a new term, which is called kufr of tariqah as opposed to the kufr of iman. And this needs to be explained a little bit, and I'm just trying to look for the, um, the kufr of tariqah as opposed to the kufr of sharia. Now the kufr of sharia, what does that mean? That a person becomes an unbeliever according to the teachings of sharia. So that's obviously terrible, that's an apostate, right? That person loses their imam. What does it mean to have kufr of tariqah? So what he was saying, I think maybe let me sort of do this part for you. I'm going to skip page 192, uh, and let me go straight to 193. Okay, the kufr of tariqah, the kufr of tasawwuf, in other words, what he's saying is that there's one way that a person becomes kafir in terms of their iman and aqidah, and that means either they become an unbeliever in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or they ascribe partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Okay, kufr in sharia is that he says that the kufr, the kufr of tariqah, the way a person can become a kafir as far as tasawwuf is concerned, not become a kafir, this is just a term he's using, uh, it would have been better to skip this. The only reason I'm stuck now telling you this is because I've given t to you in the packet. <laughs> this should not have been something I gave to you because there's no way I'm going to be able to teach this in depth, right? And you're, I'm going to have to spend time on it because this is one of the things that you will misunderstand if you read in your own. All right. Uh, let me show you straight out the line that you're going to misunderstand and then you'll understand why I'm worried. So on page 193, if you look right in the middle... He says, if you really, if you look in the middle of 193, there's a small poem, the heaven is lower than the throne. If you look three lines above that. The kufr of tariqah is superior to the Islam of sharia, although it is inferior and lower than the Islam of the reality of the sharia. So what is he talking about here, right? What he's talking about is actually a very simple thing that I mentioned to you. And that is that to even, to read such a stage where not that you believe in Wahdatul Wujud as an Akidah in the sense that you believe everything is one with Allah. He's talking about the ecstatic utterance, that you're overwhelmed by such a feeling in zikr, 
you are overwhelmed by such a feeling in zikr that you actually feel for some moments, for some limited period of time, you feel as if all of the world is one with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he called that kufr of tariqah. He says that's the wrong thing to say. But if a person gets out of it, which is the context that he's saying, if a person gets out of it, then the fact that they even reach such an ecstasy is greater than what he's calling the Islam of Sharia, but it's lower than what he's calling the Islam of the Hakikat of the Sharia. Now it's difficult to understand what this means. What does it mean to be greater than the Islam of Sharia, but at the same time lower than the Islam of the reality of the Sharia? <coughs> so by Islam of Sharia, and this is a particular way he's using this term. This is not the way we would call Deen of Islam or Sharia. He's using a term basically, if we, let's do it in English first, and then we'll replace the English with his particular terms. What he's saying is somebody who is outwardly Muslim, but doesn't have love for Allah subhanahu wa in their heart, doesn't have the feelings of Qur'an, doesn't have the feelings of Iman, right? Doesn't have taqwa, tawakkul, ikhlas, sabr, shukr, khashiyat, ilahi, muhammad, ilahi, shkirasul, sasam, etc, etc, etc. It's just a Muslim in name, what you would call in English a nominal Muslim, right? Better than that nominal Muslim is that person who has all of these feelings, including taqwa, and was overpowered momentarily in those feelings that they made an ecstatic utterance which suggested that they thought that they became that the world is one with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but then they repent from that they repent from that they have to repent from that right and even better than that person is the person who never ever makes such a statement right never makes such a statement ever and has all those feelings of the Qur'anic feelings that the Mu'mineen are supposed to have mentioned in Qur'an. This is what he's trying to say. Now he chooses to label the first one as Islam of Shri'ad. This is not Deen of Islam. This is actually Hadith. There's a very famous Hadith of the Prophet where he talked about Iman, Islam, and Ihsan. And there the word Islam is not being used for Deen. There the word Islam is being used simply for outward adherence. Right? So he's using the word Islam in that sense, in the sense it's been used in Hadith. Similarly, this, the word Islam has been used in the sense by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, a very famous ayah. There were some Bedouins who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told them that don't say, A'manna, don't say you have Iman. Balkulu aslamna, but instead say you have Islam. Because you have something lesser. Right? You have something lesser. Because the inner reality of deen has not entered your heart. You just have the outward form. So by the word, the word Islam here, he means the outward form. And that's why he uses the word Islam again for the greatest thing, which is the reality of the true deen. So he says having only outward Islam, better than that is having true deen, but lapsing into an ecstatic utterance that you make Tawbah from. And the best is to have the inward Islam, to have real deen inwardly, without ever having to lapse into that utterance. Okay, so that covers these three pages. And what I just covered with you is 192 to 194. 195. This letter is basically, he goes into, this maybe you actually may be able to read on your own now. He actually takes five ecstatic utterances of particular people in Tasawwuf, and he addresses and analyzes each one in turn. And he explains how each one is, an, if taken on its literal surface, meaning is incorrect. And it would be incorrect to follow these people in the literal meaning of their words, thinking that the literal meaning of their words represents a true teaching of Islam. All right? Uh, and that is something actually you could indeed, uh, you know, 
Maybe I'll just read a couple of lines too. So on the bottom of 195, uh, on the bottom paragraph of 195, in the view of sober Sufis, and he gives this distinction between what he calls sober and intoxicated. And I'm going, to, I'm going to do that for you on the board in a little bit. In the view of the sober Sufis, however, these words are the outcome of intoxication and the result of non-distinction between the reality of something and its symbolic form, between the hakikat and the majaz. All right? Uh, this he is actually mistranslated. It's majaz, not muzaj, it's mujaz. All right. Okay, if you look on page 196... He mentions to you here, know that intoxication is a mark of wilayat and sobriety is a characteristic of nubuwat, parts of which are available to the most perfect followers of the prophets, those are called siddiqeen. The most perfect followers of the nunbeen are called siddiqeen. The most perfect followers of the prophets are siddiqeen. They get the same soberness. Sobriety means they're calm. They're controlled. They don't make these ecstatic utterances. This is that explanation as to why sahaba kiram because they had the greatest feelings. So a person may have the question that, look, if you're saying that when a person is overwhelmed with feelings of love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they may sometimes make these statements. So in the entire history of Tasawwuf, there are no more than five to ten people who have made these statements. Like Mansur al-Halaj, Rabia Basriya. There are five to ten people in the entire history of Islam, rather, I would say. So right now there are 1.2 billion Muslims on earth, right? 50 years ago there were a different 1 billion Muslims on earth. So you can really think over 14 years there have probably been hundreds of billions of Muslims. And out of the entire history of the Ummah of Islam, out of hundreds of billions of Muslims, only 5 to 10 people in Tasawwuf made these ecstatic statements. And the reason I'm making this clear to you is that means that the statistics is that point zero 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 one percent goes straight. But many times what people do is they engage in what I call fear mongering. They'll say, okay, look, you know, fine, we understand if you really are careful about the sawa, if you follow Shia, you follow Sunnah, it would be okay. But you really want to try that because don't you see what, what happened to Mansur al-Halaj? Mansur al-Halaj is somebody who said, Anal Haq, he said, I am God basically, right? Do you really want to take that risk? So the risk is, again, five to ten people in the whole history of the Ummah who went astray. So you're not really putting yourself in that risk. If you're, if you're going to be that statistical about taking risks, you can no longer drive on the road. Literally, because the statistics of being in a road accident is greater. The statistical chance of being in a road accident is greater than going, being on a Tasawwuf road accident. <laughs> on going astray on the path of Tasawwuf. So this is just mere fear-mongering. And then he ha- and now... The other difference is that Imam Rabbani Abtai has now explained clearly for us. These people who made these ecstatic utterances, they didn't know this. They didn't know that a person gets into this ecstatic state along the path. They didn't know a person could make this utterance. They didn't know about that. Otherwise, they could have safeguarded from it as well. In other words, ever since Sheikh Ahmed Sirhindan Abtai, nobody has ever made such an ecstatic utterance. So he's actually successfully been able to purge classical oriented tasawwa from this problem it doesn't mean you may still have quacks to do all types of crazy things people do crazy things in the name of Islam so people can do crazy things in the name of Sufism today but rightly guided people on tasawwuf in the history of Islam 5 to 10 of the rightly guided people on tasawwuf made a mistake ever since Sheikh Yamatir Hindi no single one of the rightly guided people to tasawwuf has ever made a mistake okay and he has individually mentioned all of their particular sayings Alright, so that is the point that we wanted to make here. Alright. Next, page 198. The letter here, actually, this is slightly contextual, 
you know, there were actually some people at the time of Imam Rabbana because, because they denied the need for Prophet and prophecy, they claimed that it's possible to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without obeying the Prophet. So he simply says that no, obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obedience to the Prophet are exactly the same thing. And this is clear in Quran that there is no difference. Allah says in Quran that that person who has obeyed the Prophet it is indeed equivalent to, tantamount to, as if he has obeyed Allah SWT. So what was the incident? So let me show you this incident so you see. So this is not one of the rightly guided Mashaikh who went astray. This is a rightly guided Shaykh who never went astray at all, but people misinterpreted some event. So that also happens, right? People misinterpret an event. So the event is page 158 that some Mashaikh in the state of intoxication under experience have uttered words that differentiate between obedience to Allah and obedience to the Prophet and speak of choosing the love of the one over the love of the other. For instance, it has been reported that Sultan Mahmud Ghaznavi, who was the Muslim ruler of the time, came once during his reign when he was the ruler to Kharkan. And he put up his tents there. He set up camp there. He must have come for some reason. And he sent his men to request the Shaykh, Shaykh Abul Hassan Kharkani, to visit him. And he instructed that in case the Shaykh was not willing to visit him, because sometimes Ulaman, Mashaykh, they didn't like to go visit the kings. They used to tell the king, you'd visit us. Right? You shouldn't summon us to visit you. So I said, you should recite to him the verse of Quran, right? Ati'ullah wa ati'ur rasul wa ulul amri minkum. That you should obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, obey the Prophet and those who are in authority over you. And this is also one of the most commented upon hadith, uh, ayat of Quran. That who are the ulul amr? Are they those of political authority over you? Are they those of religious authority over you? If it's religious authority over you, it means you have to follow the ijtihad of the mujtahidun. Right? Or is it both? Some people say it means both. So anyway, so obviously Sultan Mahmud Ghaznavi felt it meant people in political authority. So he said that you should recite the ayat to the Sheikh and Allah Ta'ala is telling him in the Quran to obey me because I'm the one in authority so I'm telling him to come so he should come. So when these messengers went and they invited and they saw exactly this happened, Sheikh Ambas and Kharkani didn't want to go. He says, no, I won't go. So what did they do? They recited the verse. So at that moment, Sheikh Abul Hassan Kharkani said that I'm still occupied with Allah's obedience. I feel ashamed that I've not moved to the obedience of the Prophet and what to say of the obedience of the ruler. Now, this wasn't, it wasn't his Akidah statement. He was just saying this to the guards to get out of this issue of having to go. He was not saying that, okay, I'm obeying Allah's sponsor right now and I've not yet obeyed the Prophet In fact, if anything, it's mentioned in the hadith that the Prophet has taught us not to associate with people who are corrupt rulers. There's no ayah in the Quran that actually says that. So the very act of Shaykh Abul Hassan al-Khraqani, refusing to go to the king is actually based on him following that prophetic model. Right? But this is just a statement he was saying that, okay, it, okay, if you think that that's what it means, that Ula Amri Minko means I have to obey Sultan Mahmud Ghaznavi, so don't you see there's an order in the Quran, first obey Allah and then obey the Prophet So I'm still busy on one. Right? I'm still busy on one. He could have said I'm still busy on one and two, but then he said, okay, so the next step is three. So to keep them from even giving that answer, he just said I'm busy on number one. That's all it was. Right? It was not in any way that he was viewing that these things are different. All right? Okay. All right. Page one, the letter on 199 is a similar incident where he tries to clarify. Page 208. Okay. Page 208, what does he say about Kash? This is worth reading a little bit. So the second indented paragraph on page 208. What should I write about Kash? In this field, the causes for mistake are many, and the possibility of error is great. 
So he's making it clear that kashf and ilham is not an infallible source of religion. It is fallible. It is subject to error. You could be possibility of mistakes. The occurrence of these revelations is as good as their non-occurrence. Sometimes if you don't get kashf and you get kashf, it's equally good. Them happening and them not happening is equally the same thing. What he's saying is there's no merit. There's no fazila that is attached to getting kashf. Why? Because again, fazilat and merit is attached to the sifat of Qur'an, sifat of sunnah. You have more tawakkal of Allah, that's better than you have less tawakkal of Allah. That's better. You have more kash, that's not better than if you have less kash. That's not better. Because kash does not have value in deen. It occurs, but it doesn't have value. Alright, there's a very important teaching to make clear in tasawuf that it's something that doesn't have any values. Alright? Okay. Alright, we'll keep going. And now you move to page 217. Alright, let's look at this at the bottom of 217. You observed, so somebody asked him a question. You observed that one does not attain, actually somebody is writing him, that Imam al-Rabbani Nanta, you said that a person will not attain the nearness to Allah SWT unless one has experienced fana and baka. And he's also mentioning the stages of jazba and suluk. That's just another way to describe the stages that I mentioned to you. Alright? But the Sahaba, Kiram radiallahu ta'ala and majma'in of Sayyidina Rasulullah they're believed, they're universally held to be superior to any wali of the ummah. Even that Sahaba who only met the Prophet for a short period of time is greater than all of the awliya combined. And this is a fact. Even that Sahabu who maybe met the Prophet just for a fraction of a second is greater than all the awliya of the history of Islam combined. Alright. So the question then is that did they complete all of the stages of Fana, Baka, Seher and Saluk just in one short contact? Because if you're saying that going through that journey is necessary to get that final goal which was the ultimate goal, right, of being 100% attached to Allah SWT and also doing work of khidmat and da'wah in this world, then how did the Sahaba do it? They didn't go through this whole long path, right? A good question, right? Okay. Second, second question is that whether the companions, did the Sahaba get this thing, this fana and baka? Due to the spiritual attention of the Prophet was it just the soba that just came in the heart of the Prophet the presence of his heart, and that's it, they got it all? That could have been a possibility. Maybe he's himself, the questioner is himself thinking of possible answers, right? Maybe the Sahaba did go through it, but for them it was an instantaneous journey, right? Because they didn't do it through the process of zikr or the process of ittikaf, nafal ittikaf. They did it through the process of soba, just being in the company of the Prophet asking, is that the reason? Or was it by virtue of their submission to Allah SWT? Was it because of their perfect taqwa? Is that how they got this wilayat? Right? And lastly, you wanted to know whether they became aware of Saluk and Jazbah by undergoing these experiences or without them. So the quote-unquote experiences that occurred to a person on the path, did the Sahaba experience these experiences or did they get to the destination without going through these experiences? Yes? Okay. But if they did not have them, if they didn't have them, and they didn't receive the attention of the Prophet would we call them Bidah Hasana? There's a good innovations, right? So Bidah Hasana is a topic that when you get the Bidah workshop, right, uh, you will see that is something that we talk about in detail. Uh, this is a concept that is mentioned by Sayyidina Umar, radiallahu ta'ala, in the Hadith of Bukhari. In Hadith of Bukhari, Sayyidina Umar, when he gathers the Sahaba together for Taraweeh, Basically, when he was Amir al-Mu'mineen, this is after the Prophet has passed away. Sayyidina Umar is Amir al-Mu'mineen, he's Khalifa. 
and he enters Masjid Nabawi in Ramadan and he sees there are groups of Sahaba praying. There's not one jama'ah of Taraweeh, there's multiple groups. So when he walked in, he orders that then they should all form one group. So Sayyidina Ubay ibn Iqab, this is all in the workshop, this is word for word from Bukhari. Sayyidina Ubay ibn Iqab, he protests and he tells Sayyidina, what are you doing? And what does he say? He says, the Prophet never did this. You're doing something new. You are telling that all of us, we should pray Taraweeh together in one jama'ah in the masjid. You're saying that there should not be multiple simultaneous jamaats in the masjid at the same time offering taraweeh. And the word that is used is bidah. So what does Sayyidina Umar respond? Sayyidina Umar responds to Sayyidina Ubayyan, two sahaba talking in Masjid Nabwi. Who are the two sahaba? These are two of the greatest sahaba. Water should come to your mouth when I say the word Umar and Ubay. Right? So Sayyidina Umar, he responds to him. And what does he say? He says, Ni'mah. Ni'mal bidah to hadha. That this is such a wonderful bidah that I'm doing. <laughs> he says it. It's word for word. And then Sayyidina Umar does it. All the Sahaba agree. Obey ibn Kaab, quiet. He also agrees. And from that day until today, there has always been only one jamaat of Taraweeh in Masjid Nabwi. Who instituted this practice? Sayyidina Umar What were the words that he used to institute that Imam Bukhari has recorded? He used the word bida. He used the word bida. And he knows how the Prophet used the word bida in hadith. He knew the hadith that the Prophet said every bida is a dalala and every dalala leads to hellfire, etc. He knew that. But he also knew that the Prophet had in mind when he said that word bida at that occasion, every bida, everything new in Islam that is against Sharia. He understood the meaning of the word. Didn't confine himself to the wordings of the word. He understood the meaning of the word. Alright? Here, you, you have to make sure you get that from me. Because another break passed and you didn't get it from me. Right? Okay. So anyway, so the questioner, sounds like maybe he was an alim, right? So he knows about this concept. But an Imam Shafi'i he's from the Tabai Tabin, from the Salaf. He also completely believes in Bidat Hasana and he makes a whole long argument in his books and establishes the case for a whole category, whole category of actions that should be called Bidat Hasana. So this alim is asking then, okay, is that, is that what this is? Right, that all of this, okay, you have to go through these different paths and experiences and those four stages, right? Maybe that's just a bit of tasana. All right. So now Imam, Imam Rabbayantha, he gives two answers. All right. Now this is, this is one of the more difficult letters. And I'm probably going to stop after this letter and then explain this one to you on the board. And then we may have to call it. Uh, let's see. So he says to me, you must know. That in order to understand these points, you should rather see me and spend some time with me. What does it mean? That there's only so much you can respond to in a letter. So we find the same problem. There's only so much you can do over email. Right? For example, if you had asked me the questions, if you asked me, if you wrote me an email that what is Fanan, what is Bakan, what is Hayran, what is Ilham, and what is Kash, and I got that in my inbox, I can't write you an email in response. I'd have to do something like this. Right? You'd have to come see me, sit with me. We'd have to have some interaction. Right? You cannot really communicate all knowledge through letters and emails. So I think that's understood. Anybody who's involved in education and studying or teaching will understand that. All right. Then he says, it is not easier for you to appreciate truth which no one has so far disclosed. 
right? And I'm going to, he's going to disclose a bit of it, and then I'm going to do it on the board for you. Imam Rabbani's, and this is maybe his most uh, amazing uh, understanding of the Sawaf. I have, however, now that you have raised these questions, I have no option except to discuss them. I would, however, do it briefly because this is a letter, right? So listen to the brief explanation, then I'm going to give you the more detailed one on the board. The qurb to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that one attains through this whole process of fana, baka, suluk, and siyur, is the qurb of the awliya. I'm changing the word slightly so that you understand. Is the qurb that is attained by the awliya. It is the qurb which the awliya of the ummah attain. However, the qurb that the sahaba got, because of their association with the Prophet ﷺ, they got the qurb of nubuwa. They, were, they got the closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the Prophet ﷺ had. That's why in deen of Islam, you see, now you may be thinking, we're not saying Sahaba became Prophets. We're saying they got the qurb to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the Prophet ﷺ get. To show you this, in Akhirah, there's a place called Jannat al-Firdaus. Jannat al-Firdaus is not just for Anbiya. The entire Ummah has ijma on this. That all the Anbiya will be in Jannat al-Firdaus. And number two, they will be non-Anbiya also in Jannat al-Firdaus. So there's seven Jannas, right? Allah Ta'ala has not made the system. That would have been a possibility, right? And that would have made rational sense to us. That the qurb of the Anbiya and Akhirah will be more than everyone else. So whatever their level of Jannah is, that will be just for Anbiya. And you know, maybe Sahaba will be in level two, right? No. Sahaba will also be in Jannah al-Firdaus. As far as qurb with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he has opened it up to all of the truest followers of the prophets. That's called Siddiqeen in the Quran. And the greatest of them obviously is Siddiqi Akbar. Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Alright? Okay. So he's saying the Sahaba, in other words what he's saying is the Sahaba are closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the awliya are. The Sahaba had more qurb, had more closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the awliya did. Okay, they received this qurb through the Prophet by following him. And in that qurb, when you get the closeness to Allah that the Prophet had, there's no fana, baka, sayur in that. There's no process for that. There's no process, there's no journey for that. Okay, so number one, it's a higher qurb. And number two, there's no process for that. Only the Sahaba can get that, and they get that through their sohbah. Because sohbah of Sayyidina Rasulullah is something that is infinitely more powerful and intense then fana and baka and all of those things that a person could try to do by means of zikr. Alright? Okay. In this, okay, that's done. However, it is many times superior, that's done, it's many times superior to the qurb of the awliya. For it is the first order qurb, while the other is a second order qurb. But does this mean he's saying the real qurb, the highest level qurb that you can get? Because again, when you can't have union, then what can you have? You can have nearness. And that's in Quran. Allah Ta'ala says, فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ وَنَحْنُ أَقْرُبُ إِلَيْهِ أُولَيْكَ الْمُقَرَّبُونَ So this is the Quranic concept. The qurb of humanity with Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So what's the maximal level of qurb you can get? Not unity. The maximal level of qurb is qurb nubuwat The closeness that the Prophet sons have. And the Sahaba were gifted with that closeness. And that is infinitely superior than the qurb of the awliya, than the closeness that the awliya have to Allah SWT. Alright? So you're surprised by the answer, right? <laughs> so you can't, you can, many people can come up with this question, but they don't understand the answer. Right? You won't be able to come up with the answer on your own. 
That's why you need to understand the person who understands things like Qurb. That's the Mashaik of Pasuk. They understand these things. They're like, basically the tone and tenor of this letter, you can't appreciate maybe in English, is Imam Rasul, so what in the world are you talking about? The Qurb of Sahaba is here and Qurb of Awliya is here. In Urdu we would say, Unki Qurb kaha aap awliya ka Qurb ka? You're talking about a difference of day and night. You're comparing incomparable things. Sahaba and awliya, their qurb is radically different. Allahu Akbar. Right? MashaAllah, this is the understanding of Sahaba also. Really, we need to really understand the incredible greatness of Sahaba. We don't understand that. We don't understand their spiritual greatness. Jannatul Fardos, same level as Sayyidina Rasulullah in terms of Akhir, in terms of Qurb with Allah SWT. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Alright. So the difference between them is great. So I said, people do not generally know this truth. People don't know, and you will find an average person. Sometimes people think Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jilani is as great as the Sahaba. You're crazy. <laughs> That's a crazy thing to think. Right? Alright. So, and he says, and in this regard, the scholars are no better than the common folk. Even some ulama don't understand. The real maqam of Sahaba Ikram. Allahu Akbar. Then he quotes his poem, had Ibn Sina sung like a Sufi, everyone who was called Kalunga would have been a saint. Here, this is difficult to explain to you, but this is many, many puns uh, going on here. It's a bit of a sarcastic statement that Imam Rabbani is saying. Alright. Because I don't want to go into who is a Kalunga that's going to take me out from my objective right now however if one wants to achieve the prophetic qurb so let's say somebody says okay I also want to be amongst the siddiqin and that's also something Allah Ta'ala has opened up in other words jannatul for those is not closed it's still open in missions hmm? you understand that it's, oh, it's still open I mean, who knows who can make that criteria but it's not just for unbeyond sahaba Anyone who can make themselves amongst the Siddiqeen can get genital for those. That's why we read these things. We need to get realize what, why we're on earth. What in the world we're doing. And really we don't understand the choices that we made. If for the sake of career you lose genital for those and you just get Jannah, even that is a stupid choice. If you think about it. If you think about it. Right? Even that is a stupid choice. And we don't realize that. In the name of balance... In the name of balance, you don't want to sacrifice genital for those. I don't think so. Would anybody want to sacrifice? <laughs> Becoming what we normally we tell you is called Abadi Sahabi, eternal Sahaba. Because if you make genital for those, you will be also in the company of the Prophet for all of eternity. One is Madani Sahabi, one is Jannati Sahabi, right? You will become a Sahaba. Not Sahaba in the earthly sense, but you will be the companion of the Prophet in genital for those, like they were his companions in Medina Menorah or Makkah Mukarramah. So that's still open. So how can a person get that qurb, right? So he says, okay, there are two ways to get that. Two ways to get that. One is by going through this. First, getting the qurb that the awliya have, going through all this fana, baka, and these four journeys. And then after that, going even further and trying to get the qurb of the siddiqin. Now, I'll put it that way, right? The qurb of the awliya and the qurb of the siddiqin. These are both words in Quran, Right? Okay, that's one way. So if one wants to achieve the prophetic qurb by way of the saintly qurb, he, he cannot avoid fana, baka, jazba, saluk, because they are the basic principles of the way of vilayat. But if one does not take this way, 
and follows instead what he calls the saluk of Nabuwat. This is the saluk of Qurban Nabuwat in, in, in the Persian. That they follow the path directly of Qurban Nabuwat. They don't go through this Fana Baka thing. He does not need Fana Baka, Jazba, and Saluk. So the Sahab of the Prophet have followed the way of the prophetic Qurb, which has nothing to do with Fana Baka, Jazba, and Saluk. For a detailed discussion on this point, however, you have to refer to the letter which I wrote to Mulana Amanullah. So that's first too detailed, and second, it's not been translated. So we couldn't show that one to you. In my letters, wherever I have written that my affairs above Saluk and Jazba and above illuminations and appearances, I meant this Qurb. So he also feels that he went beyond this stage. And I'm going to explain to you what the importance of that is, is on the board in a, just in a couple of moments now. This is what was revealed to me while I was in the company of my sheikh. So the Arabic word in Persian word is sheikh, and we really wouldn't want to use the word master. Of my sheikh, I wrote to him that something has been revealed to me with which meditation on the self stands just as the meditation on the world stands with meditation on the self. These are also terms we cannot do for you today. Sayyidi anfusi and Sayyidi anfaki afaki are also two terms that he uses. All right. I said I had no words other than that to express that thing. Many years later, however, when that wonderful thing became perfect, well, could I put it into words? Praise be to Allah's Prophet's guidance to the truth. Never could we have found guidance had He not guided us. Indeed, it was the truth which the messengers of the Lord brought unto us. Thus, the terms fana, baka, jazba, and saluk are innovations. But here, actually saying muhdath, not bidah, by this he means they're new. These are new things. These things weren't around at the time of the Samba. No Sahaba thinks about Fana, Baka, Suyura, Arba. They don't think like that. They didn't go through that. Alright? And they are the creations of the Oliya. And Malana Jami writes in the Nafat that the first man who talked about Fana and Baka was Abu Sayyid Khraz, Rehmullahu Ta'ala. Alright. Now I want to explain to you what this is. Okay. And then once we're done with this chart on the board, you can skip basically a lot of the next letters. And then I just have to do one or two at the end. Okay.
sometimes then in many of his letters he will talk about the path, the saluk of Wilayim and the saluk of Nabuah. So first thing I will tell you, what he then ends up in the course of his life, in the course of all of his letters, he says that he's going to teach people this. Now this is the passage of Sohav that he teaches. Although there are some of the earlier letters in your reading where he does talk about this. Right? He does talk about this and he talks about getting alive and that you need pranam, but God, you get a class and he writes that. So that's also in your packet. But then towards the end of his life, he comes completely onto this, and that a person is going to be taken. He is going to prefer to take people on this path. So both paths are there. Right? First point. Second point he says is that you can reach Kurbi through Kurbir life. So it's possible that you can go through those four stages in Tanan, Baka, and get the Kurb of the Oliya, and then keep going and get the Kurb of Sahaba Siddiqin and Biyah. Right? That's also possible. And his own life experience actually he and he himself did it that way. That he feels that he's found a way to take people directly on this path, even though it's maybe longer, maybe more difficult, right? But at least it's a way that doesn't require him to go through that. Okay? So in a whole series of letters, and he outlines what is the difference. This is what I prepared for you, basically, the difference between these two paths. So the first thing, I'm going to use some of the words that are used in your letters, so that when you do this chart, you will understand the letters if you try to read them on your own. So first thing, this path is a path of ecstasy, and this is a path of sobriety. Don't, don't try to do the Arabic. Just, just, just make an Excel spreadsheet. Don't try to use paint. Just make an Excel spreadsheet with big columns and big rows and type it up. The women can see? Oh, no. So what are you doing? They can also. Okay. No problem. All right. All right. Sobriety versus ecstasy. What does it mean? He says in the path, this is, these are all features and they're all reasons why he prefers this path of the soul of Islam. No ecstatic utterances in this path. No anilhaq. No any of that. And this is what later on then used to be called Mujaddidi Sosim. Mujaddidi Suluk. So the Nanakshabani Mujaddidi way, right, is a way in which you're not going to have any ecstatic utterances. You will not say any of those things. You will not feel overwhelmed by emotions to say those things. Alright? That's the first difference. Okay? Whereas if you go through the path of Fanan Bakal and when you're in Fanan, remember I said getting stuck, I told you that later. Sometimes people get stuck on that. And when they get stuck on that, sometimes they make those ecstatic utterances. Alright? Okay. Second, is that he says, that in the path of Nabuwa, you preserve the duality of the world. Duality means that Allah, the duality of Allah Ta'ala and the world means Allah is one thing and the world is something else. They're two things. They're not one. They're two things. Right? So in the path of Nabuah, he says, it will never ever occur to you that the world and Allah Ta'ala are one. Never. Whereas in here, there is a danger, again, there's only those five or ten people. Right? But still, there is a danger on this path that a person may eliminate that duality. They may no longer view Allah and the world as two, they may view them both as one. Got it? Okay. Third thing. And then because... Because you're not trying to eliminate 
and there's no attempt here, that's also marking, you're not trying to eliminate, you're not, there's no attempt to eliminate that duality. There's no attempt to try to forget the difference between the world and Allah. That you remember. So you forget the world, and you remember only Allah plus one more thing, and you keep remembering the difference between the world and Allah. And what happens here is that these people forgot the world, and they forgot everything other than Allah, including they forgot the difference between the world and Allah. The son can't write all of that on the board. But did you all get that? Right? That was another feature in this. Okay. You can write all of that. At that font level, I don't really think that. A lot of them. Here, 
controlled by Allah subhanahu wa on you. So it's not due to something you can acquire on your own. Here, you engage in lots of nafal ibadah, nafal ibadah, because you view that nafal ibadah as a means to acquire that good. Here, you also do a lot of nafal ibadah, but you don't do it as a means, you don't do it as a means, you do it out of sugar for the curb that Allah bestowed on you. Here you do a lot of nafil ibadah, trying to use that ibadah as a means to acquire the curb that you are trying to get, Allah Here you do lots of nafil ibadah, but not as a means to get that curb, as shukr, as gratitude and gratefulness for the curb that Allah bestowed upon you. So, and here when he writes about this in one particular letter, he uses quotes the hadith of the Apostle Psalm and somebody asks the Apostle Psalm, but why do you do so much about them? Actually comes in that some Sahaba asked about them, you're, you know, you're Imam al-Anbiya wa Mursani. And he's the Apostle said, should not a servant be grateful to their Lord? He said that the answer of the Prophet should not a servant be grateful to their God. So the notion was that Imam is done as sugar. And then he uses these terms, which is been used sort of a lot, he uses the term puzzle, and the term fakir. And it says in this path, right, you become what we call fuzzly. So he quotes the ayah Allah that this is the puzzle of Allah Subhanahu wa He gives it to whomsoever He wants. Wallahu and Allah Subhanahu is the great giver of puzzle. Allah possesses immense and tremendous puzzle. So that. He says, on this path, whatever nearness you get, you view it as a puzzle of Allah Subhanahu a grace of Allah Subhanahu on you, not an accomplishment and achievement of lengthy fasts and sleepless nights, etc. And then you become a fakir in this sense, though, Ya Allah, you view yourself as needy of that puzzle. So if we were to explain this in Urdu, we would say, you're a fuzzly fakir. That's what we are. I'm fuzzly fakir. Uh, you, are, you can understand that in English also. You are a fuzzly fakir. A fakir, a person who is needy and dependent on the fuzzle, on the grace and generosity of Allah Subhanahu Fuzzly fakir. And when a person transforms themselves into that, that's their identity. So when they whittle away and trim away all the other aspects to their personality and they are reduced to this aspect of their identity, then again, that Qurban al That's what it's called to be amongst the Siddiqin. Siddiqin and Samadhi. So that goes right back to what he had said. Right? At the end of everything is what will be. The end of everything is to end up in a state of absolute servitude and slavery. Right? So this brings a person to the Ubudiyah through this method. Okay, now some practical features of this path. Right? Number one, what he stresses, and on some of them I'll show you. Oh, there's a lot more actually. Uh, so I'll just do it for you. Why don't you, since you're doing it, I'll just keep saying it, and then you keep writing. All right. So the next one is in the path of Qurban Nubuat. You only have to give up love of this world. Whereas there were some people in the path of Qurbi Walayat, they used to give up on the love of this world and the love of the next world. And in some of the letters he explains that, for example, some people, like Rabia Basriya, 
she very famous statement about her which she writes about and he critiques her for that is that one day she was walking with a bucket full of water and she was walking with a firebrand like a you know a piece of wood which is on fire and she said that whoever is worshiping Allah because they yearn for jannah I set fire to their jannah and whoever is worshiping Allah because they have a fear of jannah I put out the fires of the jannah that they're afraid of what she was trying to suggest was that it's a higher level of worship to worship only and only out of love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as opposed to worshiping out of yearning for Jannah or fear for Jahannam. And some people's uncle today may think that is correct. Imam Rabbani said, no, that's incorrect. He says that because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said in Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran, Yad'oonana raghaban wa rahaba, that you should make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, worship, call upon Him in both hope and fear, in both fear and hope. So because this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants, so the highest level of ubudiyah is to submit and make yourself according to every ayah of Qur'an. So fear and hope, hope of reward and fear of punishment is ubudiyah. And there's nothing higher than ubudiyah. So it's not higher to worship Allah only out of love and not out of desire for jannat and fear of jannam. You must worship Allah out of love for Allah and also have hope and yearning for jannah and also have fear of jannah. And there are many, many examples of that. For example, Sayyidina Rasulullah obviously the greatest of the abs, I did that from the very beginning. He made dua. Allahumma inni as'aluka jannah wa audubika minanna. Allahumma ajirni minanna. So many duas. Yes, it's correct that they were also instructive ta'liman. He was also instructing the ummah how to make dua. But it was also a reflection of his heart. He had that same fear and hope. He was an abd. To worship Allah Ta'ala as the way he wants us to worship him. So, love of the next world is good in Qurbi Nubut. Love of Akhirah. Whereas sometimes in Qurbi Walayat they felt that love of Akhirah is also, because Akhirah is also Ghair, right? Jannat is also Ghair Allah. Isn't it? Jannat is not Allah, right? Any more than this world is Allah. So they said that you should even stop loving that. So he said, no. So another way you can understand this is that for Imam Rabbanat, then love for Allah SWT includes all the loves that Allah Ta'ala Himself has commanded us to have. All the loves that Allah Ta'ala wants us to have. So love for Jannat, or yearning for Jannat, if you will, is part of, even you can say love for Jannat, no problem. Love for Jannat is part of love for Allah. It's not viewed as that love for Ghair Allah that you have to take out from your heart. And then Allah Ta'ala, I didn't read that ayah completely. يَدْعُونَنَا رَغْبًا وَرَحَبًا وَكَانُوا لَنَا And they were fearful of us. And they were always, Ghanas from Istimrar, they were always fearful of us. So because Allah Ta'ala wants it, we should always be fearful of Him. So fear of Allah and fear of Jahannam is part of being, being close to Him. Alright. Another aspect of Qurbi Nabuwat is that for Imam al-Bani and this pertains to sort of the end, and for him the end aspect was that the greatest thing a person can do is to teach Sharia, is to teach, preach, guide to Sharia, is to do Dawat al-Deen, Iqamat al-Deen, Ihya al-Deen, Tizdeed al-Deen, and that is greater than the Zikr of Sufis. So the people who were on the path of Qurbi Ulayat, they felt that zikr was greater than dawah and establishment of deen. 
He says no on the path of Qurbi Nabut, which is the Sof. He's going to teach is that doing Khidmat of Deen, Dawat of Deen, Revival of Deen, that's greater than Zikr. It doesn't mean you don't do Zikr at all. <laughs> He's Sheikh of the Sof. He writes this and he also teaches people to do Zikr. Shouldn't be misunderstood. Sometimes everybody listens to that part they want to hear. <laughs> right? So the people who like Dawah, they said, that's exactly what we've been saying all the time, that all the Sufis should leave and join the bleak. So that's not what Sheikh Ahmed Sandy is saying. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. You still have to do zikr. You still have to do zikr. But zikr is the purpose of zikr. And I did this for you in the beginning also in the morning. Zikr is a means to enable you to do dawah. That's why you cannot dispense with zikr. But zikr is on an end in of itself. The first function of zikr is to put love for Allah Ta'ala in your heart. And to bring you to that level of qurb. And then the second function of zikr, when you get that love for Allah in your heart, is that zikr is to enable you to do dawah. Remember that I recited you, Allah saying, don't listen to the dawah of that person whose kalb, whose spiritual heart is empty of the zikr of Allah subhanahu It's Quran, Allah is commanding in Quran. Alright? So this is the part I want to show you now over here. So move to page 228. Now these are a bit of the easier letters. And we can run through this very, very, very quickly. And then the more difficult letters that are towards the end, I've already pretty much taught you the material on that. So page 29, mission of the Prophet Sallallahu On the Day of Judgment, listen to what he's saying. On the Day of Judgment, we should be questioned about Sharia, not the Sawaf. On the Day of Judgment, you will be questioned about Sharia, not the Sawaf. Okay? Entrance into Jannah and salvation from Jahannam depends upon obedience to Sharia. And that's why the Anbiya who are the best of creation, what did they preach? They taught Sharia. And they made salvation from Jahannam conditional upon Sharia. And this is why, you know, this is one of the greatest things that Imam Rabbani keeps talking about as you can see. Sharia, Sunnah, Sharia, Sunnah. By the way, that's another feature. I, I left that out. In Qurbin Abu'at, you follow the Sunnah, that is your Mujahidah. So if you want to fast, fast at most Mondays and Thursdays and 13, 14, 15 of the month. That's it. No need to fast every day with just water. No need to do that. It's permissible. We're not saying it's not permissible. But in Imam Rabbani's concept, concept of tasawwuf, your only mujahada you need to do is to bring yourself in alignment with sunnah. That's enough of disciplining of the soul that you need to do. All right. Whereas on the path of wilayat, they used to do lots of mujahada. And that starts with the time of Sahaba. When you listen to the Bidda CD, you actually hear... Uh, that Sahaba Ikram used to fast perpetually fast perpetually and it was something that the Prophet didn't do so it was permissible it was permissible for them to do it alright so okay, getting back to the letters to 229 topic 229 the purpose of sending the Prophet is to preach the Sharia hence the greatest virtue lies in preaching the Sharia because the greatest of human beings are the Prophets the function of the Prophets is to teach and establish and preach Sharia therefore the greatest human activity is to teach, preach and establish Sharia that's the greatest human activity. So hence the greatest virtue lies in preaching Sharia and in reviving its provisions that have been neglected. Particularly at a time when it's Sha'air. I wouldn't call it rites and symbols. Sha'air, you know, the manifestations and hallmarks of Sharia are in ruin. Now imagine if he's writing this. This is like four or five hundred years ago. Four hundred and eighty years ago. So imagine what he would uh, describe the situation today. If four hundred eighty years ago the Sharia was in ruin. Then today it's in, it's in tatters, Right? Okay, 
at such a time to spend millions in the way of Allah subhanahu is not equal to reviving a single rule of Sharia. For in doing it, for in reviving the Sharia, one does the work of the Prophets and participates in their mission, shares in their legacy, right? Does what they wanted us to do. They are the best of creation and the greatest honor is reserved for them, even though others can spend hundreds of millions in Allah's way. That's why also his particular method of da'wah wasn't just one particular angle. It wasn't just to teach people zikr. It was to bring people on to Sharia. And that's the problem with a lot of our da'wah groups, that they also initially began as a means to an end. But they ended up becoming an end in of itself. And some people in Tasawwuf are like that as well. That being a student in Tasawwuf is a mean, it's not an end in of itself. That okay, now I'm a student, now I'm Nikshbandi. Like you've arrived at some destination. It's not. It's a car. It was used to travel. It's, it's a means to an end. Alright? So, uh, and it's difficult, and that's why people today, they don't like this type of tasawwuf, because this is the type of tasawwuf that's hard enough. We want that type of Sufism where we can still, you know, lead a life that's not according to Sunnah. We want that type of Sufism where we don't have to follow Sharia. We want that type of Sufism where we can listen to music. That's the type of Sufism that a lot of people like today. So it's not because that's the teachings of the Sof, it's because of their nafs. <laughs> it's because of their nafs, that's the type of the Sof the nafs likes. Alright? So then he says that you can say, yeah, moreover when you practice the Sharia, you conquer the nafs. Because the Sharia is designed to subdue the nafs. And if somebody wants to really get rid of nafs al-amara, they should adopt Sharia in themselves. Every aspect of sunnah, everything, even this, you know the hadith of the Prophet that wearing imama increases a person in their hilm, gives them forbearance, gives them strength to withhold. It means strength, to, it gives them a stronger hold on the lease of their nafs. Every drop of Sharia in sunnah is what defeats the nafs. So when you practice Sharia, you conquer your nafs. For the Sharia is designed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to subdue the nafs that was also designed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In spending money, on the other hand, the self it sometimes feels gratified. Right? And this may be, you know, and there are people like that today that they give a lot of money in charity and they think that's their deen. That's not sufficient for the deen. That's definitely part of deen is sadaqah. And really what he says, they feel gratified. I've seen people. You know, they will spend like a, you know, a few thousand dollars on a completely mundane vacation. But if they give a hundred dollars to the masjid, they feel so proud. Like, they, they give themselves such a big shabash. You know, they give such a big pat on the back. And if they give five hundred dollars to the masjid, they think that they're the greatest philanthropist alive in the ummah. And they'll drop five hundred on a completely pathetic, you know, traffic ticket or something. What's five hundred dollars? You know. But really, they, you know, they're amazed. They want their names written on the masjid. I won't say the name. I saw a masjid like that in this country, in your country. I'll say the name of the country, England. I won't say the name of the city. Allah Akbar, there were names and names and names. Ajeeb, right? This is a problem. To be sure the money which is spent on strengthening rule of sharia or preaching deen, that's a high order virtue. And to spend a penny on that is equal to spending millions in other ways. So you saw, remember that other aspect I showed you, I wouldn't show you too many of those letters, but that aspect, remember? I told you there were four aspects to his life. This aspect of revival of sharia, revival of deen. And that's what these people were. That's why they were called mujaddid, renewers and revivers of the deen. They weren't just trying to teach people zikr and just make them Sufi. That's it. They weren't trying to do just that. They had a greater goal in mind. 
You can't say how is it possible to give priority spending on students who are in bondage over spending on Sufis who are emancipated. What does he mean? He's talking about the students of the madrasas. And he's saying that that's better to spend money on the students of the madrasas because they're getting the ilm that is going to enable the deen and shir to be revived as opposed to spending, funding a person that, okay, you want to go and spend four months and do zikr, okay, I'll fund you. You know, like people get scholarships to study, right? If you get a scholarship to study history, you can also get a scholarship to do zikr. They had endowments like that in Islamic history. But okay, somebody says, I want to spend four months. Okay, it's okay, I'll take care of your household expenses. You go fix yourself. Spend the four months. It's a nice thing to do. It's a nice thing to do. It's just like it's nice to give somebody a scholarship to study, right? But he's saying even greater than that, is to spend on the students of ilm, the madrasas, right? Because that's from there, that's the effort from which Sharia and Deen will be revived. So the student is not yet liberated, is nevertheless the cause of liberation of others. But he meant by liberated with this sense, that he's got liberated from his nafs. So they, they were people say, look, you should give money to the Sufis because they've liberated themselves from the nafs. And why do you want to give money to the madrasas when those students have maybe not yet liberated themselves? And he says, no problem. They are getting the knowledge that's going to enable them to liberate masses of people. Alright? He preaches the shir to benefit others, even if he has not benefited himself yet. The Sufi who is emancipated saves only himself, but he does nothing to save others. Now again, this isn't the type of Sufi Sheikh Amit Rindi is creating. So it's not going to apply to the people who are students, right? But he's saying the other type of Sufi... Who just, who doesn't, who's on the path of wilayat and just doing zikr and ibadat, that's it, and not trying to revive Sharia, not doing dawah, then that, that's, he's only saving himself. Alright? But unfortunately, some of our friends they, in dawah, they make it sound like everybody in Tasawuf is like this. That everybody in Tasawuf is just worried about their own self and voi nifradi or hamich timai minat karte. Right? <laughs> what can we do? And it is plain that one who is instrumental in saving many people is better than the one who is occupied with only saving himself. However, if a Sufi has completed Fana, Baka, and Seir, so that was that path, they go to Kurbi Walayat, and then they come to Kurbi Nabuat, and they return to the world, and they engage in preaching of humanity, they do the work of the Prophet. So I told you there was going to be that path also, right? That you can get Kurbi Nabuat through Kurbi Walayat. So here it is. That okay, when you get the Walayat, you go through Fanam, Bakan, Dosir, but you come back and then you engage in Dawah and you engage in establishing Deen and Shriya, then you get Kurbanubuot also. Okay? He is the preacher of the Shriya and belongs to the Ulama of Shriya. This is a favor of Allah's sponsor which He shows to one whom likes. He is the most beneficent. Okay? Page 230, same thing. If along with the work which you are doing, you could also enforce the Sharia, you would be doing the work of the Prophets and would be rehabilitating the desolate house of Islam and restoring its glory. We Sufis and other Sufis who just do zikr on their own, on the other hand, if we work for years and years, even lay down our lives in zikr, we shall never reach anywhere near the people who establish the Sharia. We shall never reach anywhere near the people who establish the Sharia. Okay. Okay, page 231. Zikr is of two kinds. Oh, sorry. Some people, this is the issue of Walayat and Nabuat. This is what I've done for you. That Nabuat is superior than Walayat. If you go to page 232. 232, let's start with the second line here. Suppose a person who is engaged in Zikr suddenly finds a blind man standing at the rim of a well. And if that blind man were to take another step, he would fall into the well. What is better for this man, to continue in his zikr or to save the man from falling in the well? There is no doubt that to save the blind man from falling into the well is better than continue to do the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
So God does not need that person and does not need a zikr, but the blind man needs his help and needs somebody to save him. So saving the blind man in this situation is a form of zikr for obeying the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you remember Allah, you only attend to one duty, the duty towards Allah, hukukullah. But when you try to save people, you attend to two duties, doing your duty towards Allah, that if you're able to teach and preach and do da'wah, you're doing that, and your duty towards your fellow human being, that they have a right over you that you should save them, if you have that ability, right? So in fact, to say zikr at that time could even be a sin, to keep doing zikr and let him fall into the well, that could even be a sin. For saying zikr is not always good. At times not saying it is better than saying it. I'll give you an example. Instead of teaching you from 10 to 6, I could have stayed at Oxford and done zikr from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. I could have done that. But that's what I gave up to be with you. That's 12 hours. I, I don't read fast enough to complete the whole Quran in 12 hours. But in theory, maximum speed 12 would still be a little bit less. But maybe I could even complete recitation of entire Quran. Have you ever thought, I'm not just using my example, anyone, and there's so many people who give talks and teach, why in the world do they do that? Right? If they have that time that's free, they can just do their own about it. Right? Because it's a responsibility that's placed on us on our teachers, that this is what we have to do. But it doesn't mean you can get by again with zero zikr. You can't do that either. You, you see, the car needs fuel. If you keep putting fuel in the car and you never drive it, that's a problem. And if you try to drive the car without fuel, that's also a problem. You only understand this if you have a teacher. And at what stage are you in? Are you in the stage that you should be filling up fuel or you should be driving? Or you should be doing both driving a bit and filling up fuel a bit? You won't know. You can't self-diagnose yourself. Any more than you can self-diagnose yourself of a small illness. That whether is it bacterial or is it viral, you can't even tell that. And your doctors don't even know if they're gram positive or gram negative unless they do sophisticated tests, right? They can't even look at you and tell that. Hmm? You're not always able to self-diagnose yourself. Alright? Okay. So, now, next paragraph from page 232. Remember that zikr means to avoid forgetting Allah's thought on any way that is possible. Contrary to what people think, it's not Zikr is not exclusively saying La ilaha illallah or saying Allah Allah. In fact, every act, this is another major teaching of Muhammad, every act that is in compliance to the ahkam, commandments of Allah, whether you're positively doing the things that you should do or you're staying away from his negative commands, his prohibitions, is zikr. That's zikr. Following Sharia is zikr. Everything you do according to Sharia is zikr. You go to business and you run your business according to Sharia, that whole day in business counts as zikr. You go to the clinic and you lower your gaze the whole day, that time at the clinic counts as zikr. Alright? Even the buying and selling in which you observe the regulations of the sharia, that is zikr. Similarly, marriage and divorce that is carried out according to sharia, that is zikr. For one who performs these acts according to sharia, why are, they, why are you doing it according to sharia? Obviously you're conscious of Allah, you're aware of Allah, you haven't forgotten Him. Because you remember Him, you want to be sharia compliant. So that is zikr. So to be sure, the zikr which consists, the formal zikr, which consists of making remembrance of the names of Allah SWT, the attributes of Allah is more effective and more helpful in generating the feeling of love for Allah. If you do business according to Sharia, you're not going to get the feeling of love for Allah, right? But you sit down, do talawat, pray nafil, make dua, make zikr, make tasbih, you'll get love for Allah, right? So formal zikr is more beneficial than that, 
right, and in getting his qurb, but the zikr that consists in submitting to the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, either carrying out his orders or abstaining from his prohibitions, is, and, 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 is, and that is less effective in these qualities. However, some people have acquired these qualities as a result of practicing zikr in the sense of obeying Allah's commands and avoiding his prohibitions. But such cases are few, but it's possible. What does it mean? So if a person feels that, okay, if you do more ibadah type zikr, let's say you'll have more fear of Allah, right? It'll soften your heart, give you more fear of Allah. But it may be a person that in their business, they make sure every day to keep their business according to sharia, and that God consciousness, that taqwa that they have, that will also bring them to the same fear of Allah, that otherwise people maybe had to do lots of tilawat and tahajjud and zikr and dua for. It's possible, that's also possible. So that gives you scope, right, for those of you who want to continue as professionals in your life. But it has to be a very Sharia-compliant life. It has to be a very Sharia-compliant life. On the other hand, the zikr which is saying the names and attributes of Allah is a means to the zikr, which is obeying the rules of the Sharia life. What does it mean? That that person who makes more zikr is more likely to follow Sharia. Because zikr puts inside them the emotional desire to obey that being that they've fallen in love with. So doing this type of formal zikr increases love for Allah. The more love you have for Allah, the more you want to obey Allah, the more you want to please Allah. So again, he's showing you that zikr is what a means. Zikr is a means to what? Obeying the rules of sharia. That's what he's saying. Zikr is a means to obeying the rules of sharia. For it is impossible to observe the rules of the sharia in all manners unless one has a strong love for the giver and sender of that sharia for love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the strong love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala depends on zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by making zikr of his names and his attributes. Like Allah ta'ala said in Quran, Lillahi al-Asma al-Husna, that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belong the infinitely beautiful names, fad'uhu biha, that you should call upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with them. You have to use them. We don't use them. That's a verse of Quran. And if we're not doing amal on that, then... And there's no... The Apostle didn't tell you how to do amal on that. There's no hadith that tells you how to use the names of Allah. But it's in Quran. Now, are you going to accuse the Prophet of not fulfilling his mission? No. His mission was his prophethood. Allah Ta'ala gives hidayah in other ways. What is the hidayah as to how, how will you be guided? Where will you get the hidayah as to how to make dua and zikr using asmaal husna as Allah has told you to in Quran? Because you won't find it in hadith. And you won't find it in Quran. But Allah Ta'ala has given that hidayah to the ulama. Just like there's so much hidayah in the books of tafsir. Alright? Okay. So hence one has to say zikr in order to do this noble zikr. One has to do the formal zikr in order to do the zikr of following sharia. Alright? Okay. Here, the next, next letter is giving you the same topic. All right. Page 234 is mentioning a wonderful thing. Very briefly, I would just tell you, is that farz, the reward for farz is infinitely more than the reward for a sunnah, and the reward for following the sunnah is infinitely more than the reward for doing a nafal act. All right? Okay. But again, that doesn't mean, you know, you have to have an understanding. It doesn't mean that you should think that, okay, then I will never do any nafal ibadat again. That doesn't mean that because Allah SWT himself has told you to do nafil ibadat. Let me give you an example of a nafil ibadat. It's called durud and salawat. Right? So everybody knows reward for fard is more than sunnah. Reward for sunnah is more than nafil. But that same Allah commands you to do nafil. That dua of a small husna commanded by Allah in Quran, that's nafil. Making durud salawat, that's also nafil. 
So you have to be completely Quranic in sound. People promise they use their akal and try to understand. And it's part of this whole materialistic thing or priorities. So we have to do everything. We have to do nothing. And obviously we must do farad and sunnah, but we must also do nothing. Because it's part of deen. Nafil ibadah is part of deen in Islam. And we want to follow all the hidayat in the deen. For example, let's say there's a person who says, Yeah, I have never really made dua using all that small husna. So it's a problem. You're missing something on deen. Because it's Quran. It's Quran. Lillahi al-asma'il husna fad'uhu biha. And if you haven't done it, then you missed something. You missed out some hidayah of deen. Alright. Page 239. This, page 239 and 240 and 241, all of this is what he's saying, that baka is better than fana. Returning to the world and engaging the world in preaching and teaching and reviving the sharia is better than remaining stuck in that stage in which you are absorbed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and just doing dhikr. I'll tell you, emotionally, you don't want to come out of it. Who in the world would, who, who wouldn't want, right? Let's say, even if you had the choice, if you had the choice, you, should, it would, you would rather enjoy doing zikr for, from 10 to 6 and listening to me from 10 to 6. <laughs> That's ever, you may not feel you have that ability, right? I don't know how many of you can say I, you ever did zikr for 8 hours straight in your life. You just broke for Zohar and you broke for lunch and you broke for tea, <laughs> right? So we may not have that ability, right? But even if you have that ability, sometimes you have to do other things. Why? Because the deen is not about what you enjoy. The deen is about what Allah Ta'ala wants you to do. The deen is about doing what Allah Ta'ala wants you to do. Alright? So, the, he's addressing those awliyaullah who went through the path of Qurbi Walayat. And he's trying to pull them into Qurbi Nubu'at. He's trying to tell them, look, I know you, gone, you went through Fana. And you went through the four Siyur. And you didn't make any ecstatic utterances. Right? And now you are really feeling a lot of qurb with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But now I want you to take another step. I want you to sacrifice that time you spend in zikr. And I want you to engage in dawah and establishing sharia. And a lot of his letters are written to his students and to ulama. Counseling them, you must do work of deen. You must do work of deen. You must do work of deen. And he was successful. And that's why I told him in the very beginning in the morning. And when he got those people who were doing zikr. Ahl zikr to do work of deen. Not ahle ilm or ahle basirat or ahle tadabbar or ahle tafakkur. He didn't get the doctors and the PhD doctors to do zikr or to do work of deen. He got the people who were doing zikr to do work of deen. That turned back the tide entirely on Akbar's incredible, devastating attack on the deen of Islam. So this was one of his brilliance, combining zikr and dawah. So unfortunate that people have tried to separate these two. This is one of the brilliance of Imam Rabbani Rehmullah Alright? Okay. So th- these next few letters are all about that topic. Okay, page 242. Page 242. Okay, let me just read this one. Every Prophet is a preacher and is trying to preach the Sharia. So let's go to the next, uh, next paragraph. There are various levels of preaching. And the preachers are varying grades. The ulama are occupied with preaching the outer form of Sharia. The Sufis are occupied with preaching the inner form of Sharia. 
However, the one who is both alim and Sufi is the most excellent, worthy of preaching both the outer and inner form. He is the true successor of the Prophet ﷺ. And he has mentioned this in many writings. That these were those of his writings to ulama to bring them into zikr. Because they were ulama and trying to do dawah only on the basis of their ilm. And didn't have the zikr in their heart. So he wanted to make them better in their dawah. So these are the letters he wrote to the ulama to bring them onto zikr. That you need to do zikr. Why? Because only then will you be worthy of the ulama or wealth of the anbiya that you will really be the manifestations of embodiments of that hadith. That the scholars are the heirs of the prophets. Those scholars who master the outer and inner knowledges, they are the ones who are the heirs of the prophets. Some people think that the scholars of hadith who teach the hadith of the prophet are the best of the Muslim community. However, if they consider them the best of all of the sections of the ummah, that is doubtful. But if they consider them better than the scholars of the outward form of shirya, that's possible. Alright? The best of all in the Ummah are those preachers who teach the entire Sharia. So Hadith, Tafsir, Fiqh, and Zikr, and Tazkiyah, all of it. They teach the complete Deen. Right? And so that includes Hadith, but it's more than Hadith. So, so just make sure you don't misunderstand this. He's saying those who teach Hadith only, as opposed to those who teach maybe Fiqh only, and opposed to those who teach everything in Hadith, Fiqh, Tafsir, and Tazkiyah. These are the three groups he's comparing. So again, so he's writing. He was writing Hadith scholars, fiqh scholars, trying to get them. Not to leave that, but to add to that. That in addition to teaching people the words of Hadith, try yourself to do zikr so you feel the feelings of that Hadith, and then make yourself a person who cannot just teach the wordings, but bring people to the feelings of those words of Hadith. Alright? So you're getting an insight into how he was doing his work of tajdeed. Alright? Shared the companions and next letters about the Sahaba that I already explained to you uh, in quite detail. And he has quite letters on that. Page 244 onward is an interesting topic and that is of Karamat. And I told you earlier that that was coming, this notion of miracles. But this actually, I think that you can read this one on your own. So I'm not worried about that. Uh, there's nothing that I think you can actually, now that I've explained it to you, looking at it, I think you can do it on your own. Okay? Very briefly... Uh, he's just saying that just like he said having kashf and not having kashf are equal kashf is not an issue of fazila or merit and virtue just like that karamat miracles are also not an issue of merit or virtue the person who has a karama is not better at all than the person who doesn't have one because being better is based on taqwa, sunnah, ibadah, deen alright okay Page 247 is that letter I was telling you that he's going to write an entire little piece on Ibn Arabi. There are many longer letters, but this is a small one uh, that he has written. And basically, he ends by saying he feels that he was mistaken, but that Allah Ta'ala is still pleased with him despite his mistake. So this is different than some people who don't think Ibn Arabi was mistaken at all, or others like Imam Ibn Taymiyyah is quite harsh on Ibn Arabi and feels that uh, Allah Ta'ala is not pleased with him at all. Right? So Imam Sir does Husnizan. And he feels that he was mistaken, but he was not misintentioned, and uh, that he considers him as the amongst the people whom Allah Ta'ala is pleased with, even though we will definitely uh, denounce and censure and, and make clear that we disagree with his mistakes. Alright, from page 254 onward is a long letter from 254 to 259, which you can read since I explained that to you. And uh, Faisal Saab can take a look at that as well. That's the criticism of Mahdatul Wujud. Alright, so I did this for you verbally earlier on. Uh, and this is a letter that uh, discusses that and you should be able to do that. And page 295 onwards is that issue which I've mentioned to you about the different, 
the three positions and the status of the world uh, that Allah and the world are one and Allah and the world are different but the world is a shadow or that the two separates of that I've also explained to you so I have managed actually to run through either the text or at least the topics of all of the readings that we gave you and this is the mercy and help of Allah on us so now we take your questions uh, as we told you so we're going to give you an open Q&A session uh, by open open I don't mean every question you have on Islam <laughs> right but open in terms of everything that was talked about today whether it was in the morning or late morning or early afternoon or late afternoon you had four sessions any questions that any one of you have in any one of the four sessions uh, and then when we're done with that then I will answer the last question because I will give you I don't know where my schedule went but I have put on there maybe you can put it up if you have you have the schedule on the no you don't have it. oh I will give you some nasiha in terms of practical things for people at our level in our day and age who are living in a place like England uh, certain possibilities and it's not necessary for anyone but options that are available for a person in terms of practices of dhikr and then inshallah we'll make dua alright so let's start with your questions and again those of you whose spouses are downstairs if you can prompt them through SMS to get the questions from the women yes front row Imran Kuhn from, from what I understood um, it's not sufficient to do dhikr alone for the person they have to engage in some other form of dhikr alone the If you put, open up just a plain Word document or something, just Word is fine, even Notepad or Textpad is fine. So let me put up, it's, it's, it's answered to your question. Caps, boldface, and decent font size. Taqwa, ibadat, taqwa, ibadah, sunnah, zikr, Sohba Khidma Khidma You march in number eight Let me repeat the, yeah, repeat, repeat the question the question was that it appears to me that in the path of Qurb Nabuat it seems that doing zikr would not be enough that we actually have to be involved in some type of khidmat of deen right so in this notion of what would be enough these are the six things in other words then you can add equals wilayat wilayat right all of these we can establish from Quran let alone hadith all of these are in Quran alright now the question is that when are you ready for what right uh, and different people have different propensities but definitely yes in our lifetime everybody should do some khidmat of deen for that level of qurb because the siddiqeen are not just those who are true to the Prophet in terms of they truly follow his sunnah but they were true to him that's what Imam Ibrahim was saying they're true to him in terms of his mission and his message they were true in the sense that they had his thicker and that's why in the area of khidma by the way in the last one there are many ways you can do that 
That's why we're saying is that the bleak and the sower for ilm and the sower for jihad and the sower for any type of activity in the sower are not, there's not a competition because the sower is a different category. There are multiple ways of doing khidmah of deen. Now our basic view about khidmah of deen, and I'll say it first in Urdu, then I'll say it in English. Deen ki khidmat ki shobeke. دین کی خدمات دین کے تمام شعبے کی فضیلت کے قائل ہیں کسی ایک شعبہ کے افضلیت کے قائل نہیں ہیں وی بلیو ان دا ورچو اینڈ میرٹ آف آل برانچز اینڈ ایریز آف خدمہ آف دین اینڈ وی ڈو ناٹ بلیو نور وی ول ایکسیپٹ فرام اینی ون اسٹیٹمنٹ آف دا سپیریورٹی آف ون پرٹیکولر برانچ اوور دا ادرس اینڈ یو ول سی دیٹ ایون ود ان ایل ڈی مام بخاری رائٹ Are you going to accuse him that he's against Quran? <laughs> Can anybody talk like that? That Imam Bukhari must have been against Quran because he didn't write this here. Not doing something doesn't mean you're against it, right? So for example, I don't go into Tablighi Jamaat, but I'm not against it. I love it. I love the work of Tablighi. But if I don't do it, does it mean I'm against it? That's like me telling all the ulama of Tablighi. It's like me telling Malatar Jamil you're against this here because he's actually a good alim. He could write this here if he wanted But he doesn't write it. So not doing something doesn't mean, he's, doesn't mean a person is against it. Also, I will tell you about khidmah. I would say that in khidmah, we also want to follow the path of ijtiba. Which means instead of trying to myself select, people make this mistake also. That, okay, let me sit down and think which khidmah I should do. No. Work on the first five and see which khidmah Allah Ta'ala opens up for you. You know the door that Allah Ta'ala opens for you, you will be able to go through that with ease. And when you keep knocking on doors, it gets very difficult. It gets very difficult. It gets very difficult. This was a great lost sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah which was his human resource management. He knew which sahaba was great for which khidmah. He knew Khalid bin Walid from Mujahid. Abu Huraira Idra, stay with me. Sahaba Sufa, you're going to be with Muhaddith. Obeyeb Nikab, your job is to recite Quran, you're going to be the Imam of the Quran. He knew. <laughs> He allotted Sahabai Quran to their respective khidmah tasks. That's also a sunnah. Sunnah. It's sunnah, not even nafil. I will literally say it is sunnah to put yourself as a student of a teacher who can know you like the Prophet some new sahaba and therefore can allot you to a khidmah. Let them open the door for you, can allot and assign you to a khidmah that is suited to you in which you will have kubuliyah the same way Sayyidina Rasulullah allotted different areas of khidmah to the sahaba. They didn't select themselves. Nobody's going to say, nobody's going to say Khalid bin Walid was against Hadid because he hardly narrated any. Nobody's going to talk like that. Nobody's going to say Abu Huraira was against Jihad because he hardly went on any. Nobody's going to talk like that. The khidmah was given... by Nabi Kareem Sallallahu and in this day and age it can be given by a sheikh or it can be just you can ask Allah Subhanahu to open up a door for you so there, in terms of our lifetime there has to be khidmah as far as if I'm beginning on this path that I want to get wilayat which means taqwa why don't you add that wilayat uh, the end is also well just leave it because it comes full circle wilayat ends the end of wilayat is also taqwa that's what Allah said in Quran Allah in awliya'ahu illa al-muttakun That indeed who are, sorry, in awliya'ahu illal muttakun, that who are the awliya'ah of Allah other than the people of taqwa? It just comes full circle. It comes full circle. So that's the end of taqwa. The beginning of taqwa, the first usage of taqwa up there means, that means stopping sin. One by one stopping the sins that we do. 
By taqwa there we meant leaving sin. So what we have to do is we have to leave sin. We have to start increasing our ibadah, both quant consistency and quality. By ibadah I'm talking about fard and wajib and emphasize sunnah ibadah. So there's no discretion about quantity there, right? You cannot pray more for salah or less for salah. We're talking about ibadah by that. I meant fard the wajib slash sunnah ibadah. We are trying to increase in consistency and quality. And the third thing would be sunnah, right? You want to increase in your quantity and quality of sunnah. So the number of masnoon, sunnah, du'as, you know. Then the number of sunnah, du'as, you say. Then quality, what's called the number of sunnah, du'as, you feel. That after you eat, when you say, Alhamdulillah, do you really feel that from your heart? Or do you just say it real quick with your tongue? Right? And after that, we told you, zikr, fair. Zikr, I'll be explaining to you in a little bit. Right? I will tell you, sort of that will be the last thing I do. Uh, this is a long answer right, to the first question But zikr I'll, end up, I'll tell you at the end what that is Suhba Allah Ta'ala's command in the Quran Kunu ma'as-sadikin. Same thing To get this path of wilayat and sidq You have to keep yourself in the company That's a command of Quran You know when I used to teach that course I taught from a text of Ibn Qayyim al-Jaziyah He says clearly in that text That if you find a person with these, these qualities You should make that person your shaykh He says the word I have the Arabic and English Make that person your sheikh. And for him, his sheikh was Ibn Taymiyyah. Yes, it may, be, it may not be exactly the same thing. The word bear, the word tasawuf, the word silsila, it doesn't matter. Sohba. Sohba. Put yourself in the company and under the tutelage of someone. And then it's khidmah, right? So khidmah part I've also explained. So I've explained all that except for the zikr part, which I'll do at the very end. All right, questions from the left or from my left, questions from the women. No questions, you're all dead tired, huh? I can keep going. After Maghrib, after Maghrib, we have actual bayan, right? So this was just, uh, you know, like I told you something to show you. No questions? Yes, go ahead. That's a very good question, right? And uh, there are many different ways that this relationship has played out in history and contemporary times. Sometimes in history, people, like I told you, according to some biographies, Sheikh Ahmed Sirhindrullah, he only met his Sheikh three times. From after he met his Sheikh to when he passed away, if I remember correctly, that was five years. Yeah, I won't be able to find it now. But for remember, that was only a period of five years of time, right? So every person it works out differently for them. Some people end up just like Sahabi Quran. Sayyidina Abu Hurairah met the Prophet Muhammad just for a few years and the Prophet passed away. Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq knew the Prophet even before the manifestation of Nabuat and throughout the Nabuat, right? So there have been different relationships. There were some Sahaba who lived in a Sahaba Sufa, some Sahaba who lived in Medina Menorah, some Sahaba who lived in all types of surrounding areas, Sahaba in Yemen, right, who came so infrequently, and then eventually, uh, maybe the battery's dying, I would assume, because we've been going for six hours. Sometimes it happens when the, when the battery starts dying, right? Just one minute.
So, yeah. So there's no one single model uh, for that. That said, a person needs to assess, right? I would definitely, I'll give you my own, I mean, I can just as an example, give you my own example, because that's what I know best. And using myself as an example is safe because I'm not talking about anybody else, right? Or hurting anyone else or praising anyone else, right? So our own example when we met our Sheikh was in, actually, you know, what today's May, yeah, I don't actually remember the exact date, but it was the end of May, May 1994. I remember it was end of May just because in America that was a long weekend, it's Memorial Day weekend. The last Monday of May is Memorial Day weekend. So you could probably Google or find out what the last Monday of May was in 1994. And then that Friday night was when I met my sheikh. So you could actually figure out, I could figure out the date actually, I just realized. I have a way to figure out the date. But the date is not actually meaning, uh, has any meaning in of itself. But it's been pretty much 17 years, that's what I'm saying, because we happened to be in May 2011. But when I first met my sheikh, he lived in Pakistan at the time. Oh, that didn't help. And he used to come to, he came to, well, in the first couple of years, I'd say he came to America twice a year. Then he came to America four times a year. Then he went back to being, coming to America twice a year. Then I myself moved to Pakistan then in 1999, right? Uh, and then I was in Pakistan for 11 years. Uh, and obviously then in Pakistan, I had much, much, much more than two or four times a year. So how does it work? Uh, I'll tell you even, you know, sometimes when I go to Lahore, sometimes the people in Lahore used to say that I, even though I spend more days in Lahore and less days in Karachi and Islamabad, but because when I'm in actual my home, then I'm obviously busy with family and other things. So sometimes the people in Lahore actually felt that they got less time. In fact, the people of Pakistan sometimes say, but you people, the people of England get more time. So, <laughs> Allahu Alam, right? So I don't even know necessarily, but the point is that living even in the same city doesn't necessarily mean greater access. That was the point I was trying to make. How does the relationship work itself out? Is that, uh, because again, the shaykh is also just a means. He's on an end in of himself, right? And that person who cannot benefit from regular, but maybe not that frequent. You know, like if I wasn't able to benefit from meeting my sheikh twice a year, it's unlikely that I'll be able to benefit from meeting him six times a year, right? And that person who is able to benefit from meeting twice a year will also be able to benefit from six times a year, right? But I would say, I mean, that twice a year didn't literally mean twice. It meant two extended periods of time, right? Two sort of three to four week periods a year, right? So... Our own practice when we take to students to tutor and to guide on this path of zikr is that first of all, uh, generally we have a condition that twice a year is the absolute minimum. So if anybody sends me an email from some place in the world where I feel that they can, they cannot come twice a year, be it to England, as we have, mashallah, three brothers from Norway who flew in today just for this event and they're going back tomorrow, or if they can come to Pakistan, or if there's some third place where we may be able to meet, so the bare minimum, bare minimum in my experience, in my ability to teach, and my experience of people's ability to learn is twice a year. Obviously, the bare minimum is not sufficient in of itself. The more, the better, generally speaking. So for those people who live in England, because I'm here pretty much six to seven months. These, this, this year I was here eight months out of the year. And next year I will probably be here seven months out of the year. And then after that it will probably come down to six months here and six months Pakistan. So in that then what we do is we tell people not just to wait for us to come to their particular city, but we ask them to come with us wherever we may be if they're able to be free on that weekend. 
So much I can see in this room, people from Bolton and Manchester and I can't remember, Walsall, right? Walsall uh, and Birmingham, of course, and Luton and uh, I don't know, I may be missing some, Rochdale, Leicester, right? So we give that opportunity and then we have these overnight programs where we're basically able to try to meet, oh, and that other fellow was here, Wolverhampton, right? So people are here from different places. So it's not just that, okay, how many times would I come to London? It's really for me, how much am I in England? Because I view England as all one place. It's a very tiny country. I view England as one place, Lahore and Istanbul as one place, and Karachi as a third place. Believe it or not, actually. <laughs> so I feel we're operating in three places. And now we've got this fourth one, Norway. So that'll start in November, inshallah. Right? So... That covers live interaction. The second thing is email and SMS, or what I also call online bayan. Now, the purpose of the purpose of the shame is to do two things. Number one is oh, okay. Number one is to teach the zikr, to tell you a zikr to do, and then if you do it, then you will respond and tell the shame I'm doing the zikr. And then to work with you to improve the quality of zikr. And then maybe like you saw in that letter, then Shaykh Hamza gave him the next zikr, okay, now move to la ilaha illallah, right? So maybe then to give you an additional zikr to do. That type of tutoring, right? We must always have to find the time available for that, one way or the other. So that can be SMS, phone, email, or in person. Second type of tutoring, that is tutoring a person, taqwa, ibadah, sunnah, right? For that we give bayan. So that's why we're telling you today after Mother we have bayan. And there are many, many bayans recorded online. Pretty much every week we give one bayan online live every week. So we handle that tutoring through that. Right? So the words, whether it's written or spoken, don't always have to be heard live. They can also be heard online, they can also be heard pre-recorded. But I feel that minimum two times a year live meeting. For men, everything I'm saying right now is for men, by the way. There are women downstairs, and it's quite different for women because the gen- Islamic rules of gender interaction change. We never need to see women ever in their life. <laughs> right? So that's quite a different thing. Right? Uh, but, you know, I would also say increasingly as women uh, become more and more like the men. <laughs> Not understand. Women have become more like men since in the history of Islam, women used to remain in their homes. And now we have women university students, women doctors, women lawyers. So they are as exposed to the radiation effect of society as men are. And we didn't have this issue before. You know, the soul wasn't that prevalent among women before because they didn't have these problems. They didn't have these sins uh, that they needed to get taken out of because they were pretty much pious women living in their homes, leading simple lives. So you could even, they could even become bare to the sheikh and get one letter and get the zikr and that's it. Their whole life would just be spent on that. They never needed to even contact again. That's what a pure era used to have. But now we don't have that. And second, particularly in our Sosala, because of the emphasis that you saw on Hidmat. So therefore, in my own practice, um, because sometimes my wife has also uh, been a student of our Sheikh for many, many years, so we very much focus on women. And I think that women need to have, be given as much access to the teachings of the Sof and Tazkiyah so that they can do better Hidmat. And especially those women who have ilm of the deen, or those women who have that ability to so just like Imam al they should tell the men who have ilm that they should do zikr also so they can do better dawah, 
Because we as men, we can't reach the women. You know, the only women can really reach the women properly. So to work and try to prepare women who can do khidmah of deen. Right? And try to bring women to that level of zikr because we need women to do that dawah. Because women are, Muslim women are exposing themselves to the radiations that are in society. So therefore sometimes for women also it's very important to be more regular in their zikr and their rabata, etc. So that's pretty much how it works, right? And sometimes also a person may be fortunate enough to find a sheikh in their same city who holds a regular weekly gathering every week, right? So for example, when I was just living in Pakistan and not living now, 50-50, and you came back some, so these boys, and I really can remember the good old days, every Thursday, we would meet the boys in Lahore. And really, there are some men who need that. I can look back and actually see that there were some boys in Lahore who, if they hadn't gone their weekly dose, and they hadn't gone that weekly dose over the course of several months, it wouldn't have been able to, they wouldn't have been able to change. Right? At the same time, sometimes, you know, uh, I've also seen people who have met me just twice a year and they've been able to change. So that's the thing, it's not the meeting so much. It's the person, the meeting is just hand-holding. It's just reinforcing, it's encouraging, it's motivating, right? And, but the person has to have a desire from inside. The person has to have that desire from inside. To answer another very long answer to a short question. So women have had a list of questions. So, number one, well, what is the linguistic definition of Sharia? Sharia in the Arabic language literally means way or path. And it was also sometimes used for the way that would identify the source of water in the desert. Okay? The use of the word Sharia in Islam means living that way of life, that path of life that remains within the boundaries of halal and never crosses out and goes into the area of haram. That is what Sharia is called. The understanding of what is halal and haram that is derived from Quran and Sunnah, that understanding is called fiqh. 